0: tuesday february 1st 2022 from Peachfish productions it's the gist i'm mike Pesca. tom brady has retired the most successful football player of all time tom brady no longer a football player that you probably know and while i have a sports bent personally i tend not to dwell on it on this my news and culture show but tom brady so transcends football his career deserves to be right up top here in fact I have put together a list of amazing things about Tom Brady with a specific audience in mind. It's my sister-in-law. Well, she stands for all those who don't really care about football, probably didn't watch more than seven minutes of his seven winning Super Bowl appearances, but I will try to make her care. And maybe even you care if you are of a sister-in-law type ilk. And also, if you're already on board with the thesis that Tom Brady's pretty damn important, I'll interest you too. Here we go. One, ready for interesting? Tom Brady has never eaten a strawberry. Something about nightshades and his diet. Guy's really into his diet. We as Americans are pretty fascinating with people who've never eaten a common food. The actress Rooney Mara had never eaten pie before she had to do it for a role in the movie A Ghost Story. Never eaten pie. Oh my. Rooney Mara, by the way, Uh, descends from NFL legends. She's named after her grandfathers who were the owners of the Giants and Steelers. But enough about them, two teams that Tom Brady beat and twice didn't. Back to Tom. I said he had never eaten a strawberry. That was true as of 2018. Then he went on the Stephen Colbert show. Colbert ruined everything.
1: I hate strawberries. You hate strawberries, but you also told New York Magazine last year, I have never eaten a strawberry in my life. Yeah. Which is it, Tom? Do you hate strawberries? I hate the smell of strawberries. Okay, and you've never had a strawberry? Still,
0: much of Brady's legacy remains intact. Brady has the most wins ever by a quarterback, by a lot. He has the most Super Bowl wins. He has the most Super Bowl MVPs And here's one thing that's pretty interesting. 19 game-winning drives in Super Bowl history by any quarterback, Brady did six of them. I know what you're saying. Why couldn't he just get a lead and hold it? He did that too, a number of times. But think about six game-winning drives. It means that Tom Brady's fourth greatest moment The fourth most impressive thing that Tom Brady ever did, you know, win a Super Bowl with a game-winning drive in the fourth quarter, but only his, you know, third, fourth best of those, that's better than the greatest moment of every single other person who's ever played football. So take this into account. Maybe I lost my sister-in-law with that very Super Bowl-y stat, but dwell with me here. Okay. Okay. So Brady orchestrated those fourth quarter game-winning drives in Super Bowls, 36, 38, 49, 51, 53. I'm not going to do the Roman numerals. Too many X's. But, but he also orchestrated fourth quarter game-winning drives in two other Super Bowls. Thing is, they didn't win the game because the defense couldn't hold the lead. So he doesn't get credit, nor should he get credit. But if something out of Tom Brady's control had just done its job, Tom Brady would have eight Super Bowl game-winning drives. And then we'd say exactly what we say now. This guy's the greatest ever to play football. Another fun fact, in the last dozen years, Tom Brady was not the highest-paid person in his house. Little-known fact, Warren Buffett was his roommate. No, his wife, Giselle Buncheon, has always out-earned him. Which, by the way, gave him a little bit of an advantage. He could take less money from management and his teams had a little more room to spend on other players. But here's the coup de grace for this guy who I, as a Jets fan, am not supposed to like. But of course I do. Why wouldn't I like Tom Brady? It would be like if I lived during the Renaissance and I walked around saying, oh, I'm a Tintoretto guy. Don't tell me about this Michelangelo. Yes, yeah, Sistine Chapel, I hear it's good. I like Tintoretto and I'm not changing. Way to appreciate Tom Brady's greatness is not a stat or a fact or the the cleft in his chin or the kindness in his eyes. Wait, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, it's to contextualize the thing that he did, the thing that he does, his profession, contextualize that in the current American experience. Let's say it plainly. Football is the most culturally dominant product in the culture today. There is nothing that attracts so many of us, such a disparate cross-section of us, such an intergenerational cohort of us. So you probably know that the top three TV shows are Sunday Night Football, Thursday Night Football, Monday Night Football. Don't think of it that way. Don't think of it as what are the number one series. Think of it as the shows, the individual shows. I mean, the top show that anyone watched on tv last year and it's been this way for dozens and dozens of years the super bowl most watched show second and third the championship games fourth the thanksgiving game the top 10 all football the top 20 all football all 30 every single one a football game now The inauguration and Joe Biden's first speech to a joint session of Congress in 2021, sometimes they get listed as the 7th and 12th most watched shows, but they were on every network at the same time. Football didn't have that advantage. But even if you want to count them and count down to the 41 most popular programs on TV, they were all football, but for those two speeches in the Thanksgiving Day Parade. But football, 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 and the best best at football was Tom Brady, the exemplar of our culturally dominant enterprise. So I don't know what else I need to say to make my sister-in-law care. I think she cares. Otherwise, I don't know what to tell her. Maybe get in the ground floor of the career of Joe Burrow. On the show today, I spiel about Robert Malone not just what he said wrong on Rogan, but how he uses rhetoric to advance his agenda. But first, it is the second part of my interview with Jonathan Gottschall, author of The Story Paradox, How Our Love of Storytelling Builds Societies and Tears Them Down. In this segment, we bring the ancient arts of storytelling to the present, examine the internet. How it's a storytelling hothouse, an ecosystem where the population and varieties and virulence of stories can grow and mutate to the point of menace. Jonathan Gottschall, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. When we last heard from Jonathan Gottschall, author of The Story Paradox, he was telling us about the distortive role of villains, how our species' attraction to story foments not just meaning, but the negative empathy of hate. In this section, I wanted to talk about the internet, politics, and some recent trends. I started by talking about the figure of the anti-hero. How the golden age of television that we're living in now was propelled forward by Tony Soprano and Walter White and Omar Little. All these compelling figures that could be considered anti-heroes.
2: I asked Gottschall to offer his analysis of what's behind that. Well, it's, I, think it's, I think it's sort of a culmination of, a, of something that had been happening for a long time in serious fiction, in serious novels, and serious film. And it's a sort of movement toward moral ambiguity. a a questioning, and an attempt to discard the sort of simple morality of the good guys against the bad guys. And the reason serious fiction makers wanted to discard that is they were increasingly aware that this was not holding up an accurate mirror to nature. It is just not the case that you, know, you can sort of encapsulate all goodness in the good guy and all badness in the bad guy. In reality, human beings are mixed. You know, they have, they have good motives and grubby motives. They have uh, bright impulses and dark impulses. The other thing to say about it, however, is that in the most important sense, these stories are not new, but old. These are fairly classic morality tales. Where you have a character who maybe you know is kind of a good guy, but at some point maybe they kind of break bad, and uh, at- shall we say, <laughs> shall we say, <laughs> yes. and, at, and at the end, um, none of these guys, and they're mainly guys, none of these guys are allowed to ride off into the sunset. None of them are given a happily ever after ending. They're all punished in the end. Walter White dies gut shot on a concrete floor uh, while a song plays in the background. And, this, and the lyrics of the song, the, the opening lyrics are, well, I guess I got what I deserved.
0: Now, now I want to ask you about another trend. Again, there's, there are probably ancient roots to this, but I have noted that in recent years, there's more and more appetite for complexifying the villain villains motivations just to take mm-hmm. marvel mil, movies professor x and magneto and this comes from the comic books but they both had an articulable uh, philosophy that wasn't so easily dismissed you know people call yeah. them stand-ins for malcolm x and mlk or mm. in black panther you know killmonger versus black panther kind of kind of a similar dynamic
2: what's behind that um that's a good question. I don't. I don't ever. I don't really watch those movies, mm. um, but I kind of doubt that this is so discontinuous with the past. So we've already talked about Milton and Milton Satan. You know, and, and Satan was you know this anti-heroic character. He had all these wonderful traits. He was an incredible, uh, blazing, glorious being um, who fell from grace and uh, broke bad. Um, he's, he's, you know, a fairly classic anti-hero uh, type of character. Um, I think, you know, since, you know, Shakespeare said it, you know, 400, years ago, whatever it was, um, that the, the point of art and storytelling art is to hold the mirror up to nature, to hold the mirror up to human nature. And I think that just acknowledging that, you know, villains in some ways aren't real. These kind of... Villains that are so dark and so evil, and they're just kind of algorithms running, you know, appetite programs. How can I get Mm. more and more and more and more? People like this aren't real. You know, there's some psychopaths out there, but for the most part, almost everyone who's doing bad things thinks they're doing something good. So, to give you a somewhat controversial uh, example of this, but something that will help, you know, drive the uh, land this point, you know, I, I start the book out my book the story paradox out with this anecdote about this man who falls down this internet rabbit hole where he learns that jews are the vampires of history and there's no one with him down that hole to tell him that the story is fake and so believing the story as he does he gets in his truck and he drives to the squirrel hill this neighborhood in pittsburgh not very far from where i live and he gets out of his truck at the the uh tree of life synagogue. He shoots the place up screaming, all Jews must die. He kills 11 people. He wounds uh, several more. And it's all because he's living inside this really old and really dumb story about Jewish evil. And within that story, if you're living inside that story, what he did made a demented sort of sense. Right.
0: Just like the guy who goes with a gun to comet ping pong. It makes a demented sort of sense
2: if you really yes. think There, yes. they have a
0: cannibalistic ritual in the basement.
2: Exactly. That's, that's, an, that's an even better example. Um, because that man, you know, he, he goes to it and he tells his daughters before he does. You know, He thinks he's going to die. There's a very good yeah. chance he thinks he's going to die. And he tells his daughters and he, you know, he record, records a message and he says, I, you know, I just cannot allow this to happen. I cannot stand that this is happening to small children, just like, like my daughters. I cannot allow this evil to go on in the world. And so he goes to his death, in his view, a hero. And, uh, and he's, it's, it's, it's what you would do if you actually believed it. If you believed that there was a, a, a pizza parlor next door that was abusing and molesting and eating little children, and the police would do nothing about it, then you would feel a strong compulsion to act and if you didn't act, you'd feel like a coward for not acting. Um, so so these people are driven by um, very humane motives in, in many cases. Yeah,
0: um, I want to talk about the Internet. Uh, you look at it like what a story, a, a story telling cancer that's metastasized <laughs> beyond all control.
2: I sort of do. Yeah. Um, this the the whole we're living inside this this communications revolution that has been just wonderful in so many ways, uh, but there's been a, a terrific dark side to it as well. Um, and one way of looking at it is that you know if you came up with a crazy story uh, before the internet age, it was really hard for that story to get outside of your own small insular social network. Um, Partly because it wasn't technology to spread around and partly because there were gatekeepers who said, no, this idea is crazy and uh, we're not going to print it. Um, what's happened now is that the, the, the gatekeepers have all been bypassed um, or rendered extinct. And there's simply no barrier uh, to any crazy stories uh, capacity to spread all around the world, to jet all around the world, leaving a contrail of really confused people yeah
0: and i have often praised gatekeepers on this show i mean if you don't like gatekeepers ask someone who lives next to a prison but <laughs> here's my question about gatekeepers what story were the gatekeepers telling if everyone's telling a story and they're they're literally you know sometimes the gatekeepers are editors yeah are they telling a different story better story
2: consistent story there was always problems with gatekeepers you know but what gatekeepers did, let's go back to sort of the broadcast era, was it kind of kept everyone within the same universe of narrative, the same universe of facts. Um, And this wasn't perfect. Uh, There was all kinds of biases in the messages we were getting. There was all kinds of blind spots in the messages we were getting. A lot of people were left voiceless. This wasn't great. But it may have been better than the alternative, which is the society fractured up kaleidoscopically into all of these different universes of incompatible uh, stories and incompatible ideas and incompatible ideologies, where when you look across a political divide, it honestly seems like the people across the, that divide are crazy.
0: So you teach at Washington and Jefferson College. Washington and Jefferson, two great Americans. You may know them from such bills as the one and the two. But <laughs> there's this movement to tear down statues, undo their work. It's a story, you know, this is it's a clash of narratives, it's a clash of values, but what is the story we want to tell ourselves about the importance of America? is there a difference in how you look at this impulse and how it's being carried out have you maybe changed in your opinion of this from when you wrote the storytelling animal a 2013 book right after barack obama had been elected and mm-hmm. things were looking good and you were positive, um, and you were optimistic about uh, america and now
2: well when it comes to tearing down statues and so forth um i i this is something i get into in the book and i, I do find that these sorts of movements um, are completely understandable, but I also think they they are prone to go a little too far and they, they're prone to be quite divisive. Um, I, I don't think villains exist, really. <laughs> you know, this is, I'm skeptical of the existence in real life of, of bad guys. And there's a, a tendency right now to sort of villainize uh, our own past and what I'm asking for in the book, really, is a more radical form of empathy than most of us are used to grasping for. So we're all encouraged to feel empathy for the wretched of the earth, for the poor, the, the, the oppressed, the enchained, And that's not very hard for us to do. That's, uh, the, the, the moral imperative of that is contained in that eternal ethical wisdom, there but for the grace of God go I. Um, But when it comes to the villains of history, we have a sort of failure of empathetic uh, imagination. When it comes to the conquistadors and the slavers and the inquisitors, we can't allow ourselves to imagine or to admit that, but for the grace of God, that's where we would have gone too. If if not, you know, if we were born into their circumstances, into their stories, into their genetics, uh, we would have ended up the same way, you know. So for for example, um, there was very little, you know, resistance uh, against the Nazis from within Germany. It, it, it happened, but there wasn't very much of it. And why wasn't it? It was because it was it because they were all, you know, hideous villains. No, it was because they were inside a propaganda environment that, you know, they're inside a Truman Show. And it was a fascist version of the Truman Show. And all of their input, inputs were telling them the same story. And even if you were able to see through that story, um, were you willing to risk your life and risk the life of your entire family to stand up against Nazis? So... There's a sort of moral vanity that we have that if we were in the the, the shoes of these historical malefactors, that we would have behaved differently. But in probabilistic terms, this is a statistical matter, very few people uh, did behave differently.
0: So what's the action item? Uh, I find it interesting, titillating. Um, It tickles me and probably plays into a story I tell about myself to realize all these things and to be aware. But are you kind of telling a person, try not to see in color? It's very hard to do, given that we're so driven by stories.
2: It is very hard to do. Yeah, this this is very hard. And also, stories are designed to sort of take over your brain and uh, lull you into a condition of passivity. You know, it's hard. It's hard to, to maintain your skepticism in the face of a well-told story. So, action items. I think there's there's two things that I suggest people try. Uh, the first thing is is this. I had this sort of you know nightmarish image when I was writing the book, and it was an image of people reading it. And kind of nodding along happily as they tick off all the ways that my points apply to the stories and the people and the ideologies that they don't like very much, but never thinking to turn this around on themselves, turn this skepticism around on ourselves. So what I want to get across to my readers and to our listeners today is that these problems of narrative psychology I talk about are not a them problem. It's very easy to see that the other side is doing this, but it's not a them problem. It's an us problem. It's an everyone problem. Uh, Human beings have a tendency to get misled by narrative. And I see very little acknowledgement, much less realization of this anywhere on the political spectrum. Uh, certainly not among my own tribe of sort of left of center uh, democratic types. Um, so, so part of it is, you know, being skeptical of your own stories, not just of the other guys' stories. The other recommendation I'd make, and this will be kind of surprising after uh, it sounds like I've been poor mouthing storytelling, you know, for an hour. Uh, the, the other recommendation is that we should tell stories. We should continue to tell stories stories because stories aren't just at the heart of the problems we face they're also at the heart of the only hopeful and plausible solutions so stories really do have this special capacity to draw people together to make them see their similarities to get past their differences um, to make us all get along better but only if we can resist telling them in ways that are guaranteed not to work So if we want to build bridges of narrative across our divides rather than just blowing up the few bridges we have left, we have to resist this very deeply human, giddy tendency to portray ourselves and our side as the heroes in the story and the other side as the the villains in our little morality tales. This is a very primitive, very crude, very dangerous way of thinking. And it's not a way of uh, producing social progress. It's not a way of getting the sort of compromise that a democracy needs to actually move forward. What I think it is is a way of prosecuting a cold civil war of storytelling that is in danger of escalating towards something much worse.
0: The name of the book is The Story Paradox, How Our Love of Storytelling Builds Societies and Tears Them Down. The author is Jonathan Gottschall.
2: Thanks so much. Mike, that that was great fun. Thank you, man.
0: And now the spiel. The criticisms against Spotify by a couple of prominent recording artists and podcasters mostly stem from a letter signed by science educators denouncing the information that two particular guests of Joe Rogan put forward. One of those guests, Robert Malone, is among the developers of the mRNA vaccines. Malone has been banned from Twitter and other outlets for advancing scientifically unproven, or in some cases, flat-out rebutted information about the COVID vaccines. Counterpoints to Malone's claims abound, but I listened to the entire three-hour episode. I took notes, not with a mind for the information outside my area of expertise, the science, but for information that fell inside it the rhetoric, how Malone advances his points, and how Rogan solicited, rebutted, or allowed information to air, and the manner in which fact-checkers engaged on those issues. Now, to some extent, the science is unavoidable. In those cases, I consulted top experts. That won't convince a Malone acolyte. Part of his thesis is that the experts are on the take, deluded, or otherwise inexpert. But this is the best we could do. On occasion, The expert consensus actually more or less agreed with Malone. But the reason Malone brought it up in those cases was to mischaracterize what the consensus was. As far as Malone being a conspiracy theorist, that's not a theory. A few times on his show, he alleged a widespread conspiracy and named names. Here's one of those times.
1: The disclosure of emails that um, Cliff Lane, uh, Tony Fauci, and Francis Collins actively conspired to destroy any discussion of the appropriateness of lockdown strategies and in the mainstream press hardly covers it and there are no con- there are no consequences the document trail having to do with the gain of function research and the implication of NIH and by the way DITRA in that um, having absolutely no consequences for anybody um we're in an environment in which truth and consequences are fungible they this is modern media management and warfare
0: all right here's the backstory on that october 2020 three researchers from harvard oxford stanford those are their backgrounds they get together and author what they call the great barrington declaration it's short it's eight paragraphs i'll summarize one Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on long and short-term public health, they wrote. The old and vulnerable are more likely to be severely infected by children, they wrote. Our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. Hearing of the existence of this declaration, Francis Collins, then director of the NIH, emailed Anthony Fauci saying, we need to rebut this. His exact words, found after a Freedom of Information request, was, quote, there needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. Fauci writes back, don't worry, there already is, and he links to a piece that the science editor of Wired wrote the day before. The science editor of Wired made some pretty good points, like, Sure, it seems impressive that the Great Barrington Declaration has thousands of signatures, now it's in the hundreds of thousands, but You just need to click it. There's no verification of who you are, and the authors don't really define who's vulnerable and who's not. There's no consensus on when or where or if herd immunity can be achieved. It's not clear that getting it and recovering won't offer long-term side effects. So I don't know if it's a devastating takedown, but it satisfied my curiosity about why the Great Barrington Declaration might not be the way to go in combating the coronavirus pandemic. It was a debate between Team Lockdown and Team Herd Immunity, and Team Lockdown won. They tried pretty hard to win. I guess their critics would say they played dirty. But what they really did was just to argue strongly and in many outlets that Team Lockdown was wrong. Was it a conspiracy? Did Fauci conspire to suppress anything? The conspiracy consisted of a concern that an argument was gaining traction and a reply don't worry here's an article already addressing your concerns doing what you ask for the email between collins and fauci took place october 8th the wired article in question was published october 7th it already existed it's a kind of conspiracy where you say hey let's steal the hope diamond no wait because just yesterday i bought the hope diamond The Wall Street Journal reported that Facebook later censored the existence of the Great Barrington Declaration. I couldn't confirm that they did. Facebook has some pretty dumb algorithms that do that, and that would be wrong if true. YouTube did remove a talk between the authors of the declaration and Governor Ron DeSantis, wrong and true. But the charge there was a conspiracy versus a viable press strategy, inaccurate, Part of public health is communicating with the public, and I would bet that anyone in Fauci's position would work to circulate information rebutting a premise that was judged to be dangerous. Sometimes talk of conspiracies weren't indicated by the literal word conspiracy. Dr. Malone sometimes would want to introduce an idea, an idea that maybe he can't prove. Here's one idea. He wanted to tell us that hospitals are getting paid to overestimate the number of patients who had COVID. But he sought to introduce that idea without claiming that, yes, this is my thesis. What he did was, he invoked a rhetorical technique called Paralypsis, which is the, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, way of saying something. I'm not saying Apple wants the old model iPhone to break so you buy a new one. I'm just saying. That does seem to always happen here. Doctor Malone uses paralipsis to advance his financial incentive accusation.
2: You re- you think that
0: the reason why he was targeted because he was directly costing the hospital money because people weren't
2: going in? I'm not COVID? saying
1: I I'm saying that the observation is that early treatment keeps people out of the hospital, and that hospitals have financial incentives, including death incentives, financial to discourage incentives.
0: early treatment. Rogan there helping Malone finish his point. Huge, if true. I could cite what all the fact-checking sites cited. (laughs) A lot of citations there. I don't think it will do anything. In a nutshell, yes, it's true. Medicare pays 20% on top of their ordinary reimbursement for COVID patients. But as the fact-check sites note for a doctor or two, Mischaracterize a death or lie on a death certificate would jeopardize their entire standing and not pay them anymore. It's not exactly what Malone's accusation was. All the fact checking sites also note that all the research does seem to show that there hasn't been an overestimation of COVID death. It's almost certainly true there's been an underestimation for whatever happened and was coded in hospitals. There are so many people who died outside of hospitals where no one ever got to point to COVID. Rogan did question the doctor's assertion that if someone came into the hospital with a gunshot wound and also had COVID, that that person would be coded as having COVID. But the point in general was made. The point goes something like this, follow the money. Some assertions that Malone made got no pushback. Maybe this is the sort of claim that Rogan, given his vow of yesterday to check more and to push back more and to do more research, maybe he'll be able to rebut it. But this was what was said during the Malone interview.
1: They have broken all the rules that I know of, that I've been trained on for years and years and years. These mandates of an experimental vaccine are explicitly illegal. They are explicitly inconsistent with the Nuremberg Code. They're explicitly inconsistent with the Belmont report. They are flat out illegal and they don't care.
0: It's a common claim. It's all over conservative radio, which, by the way, goes to show that if you silence Rogan, this will all be out there elsewhere. It's not a credible claim. The Nuremberg Code is no longer in effect. It does lay out ethical principles for medical use. The one Dr. Malone and other commentators like Candace Owens is citing is that the coerced use of experimental treatments isn't ethical. The vaccines aren't experimental. Wait, you might say. They're being allowed under an emergency use authorization, right? But emergency isn't a synonym for experimental. They have made it through clinical trials. They've been shown to work. The FDA has designations for different levels of authorization. Experimental, the experimental phase is a designation. These vaccines are out of the experimental phase. They've been clinically tested. They've also been proved effective. They're in no way in violation of the Nuremberg Code, even if the Nuremberg Code were a code governing use in America or really anywhere else in the world today. There are several other statements that could be fact-checked or disputed, or in some cases confirmed. The question that I had is, okay, we know Malone, and I have demonstrated Malone said a bunch of things that aren't true, so what's the effect? How do they, or do they even filter out to the public? We know Joe Rogan has a huge audience in the hundreds of thousands, maybe in the millions. It's gotta have some impact. It's hard to know, right? But it's not impossible. I checked in on a podcast called the Joe Rogan Experience Review. It, guess what? Reviews. Joe Rogan's podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, but it also reflects through the two hosts what two dedicated Rogan listeners might take away from the experience of listening to the Joe Rogan Experience. The two hosts differ a bit on their intensity. One won't get vaccinated, even though it'll make him miss his dear friend's wedding. This guy seems really distraught. The other guy is the main host, or at least has the better microphone. He did get vaccinated, but is leaning strongly against a booster. Okay. They had several examples where they cited what Malone said. They gave it credence. Here is just one of their takeaways from the Malone appearance.
1: The CDC is saying that natural immunity is not as effective as the vaccine. According to, yeah, Robert. hmm. I mean... I don't know. I didn't read that anywhere, hmm. but like he says it. Um, so, like, so the, the, some of the this, clinic? we got to just believe that he knows what he's talking about, right? So reasonable. Totally reasonable.
0: Reasonable Robert says the CDC is saying that natural immunity is less effective than vaccination. Huh. We go now to CNBC.
2: New data suggests natural immunity from COVID provided better protection against the Delta variant compared to vaccination alone. That's from a report published by the CDC.
0: Yeah, the CDC did not say natural immunity was less affected. Robert Malone said the CDC said that on Joe Rogan and that's what Joe Rogan's listeners heard. And those aren't any two listeners. I mean, in a way, what I'm using them for is uh, a focus group of sorts, but they're also a megaphone. That podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, that was number five on the total Apple charts as of this afternoon. It was ahead of The Daily in This American Life. And that brings up an interesting point. Neil Young doesn't want to associate with Rogan on Spotify. So he heads to Apple and people signal their virtue. I think there's a phrase for that saying, I'm canceling Spotify. I'm going to Apple. Well, as I just told you, the fifth most listened to podcast on Apple is that one. Plus they have the Bannon podcast and a whole bunch of other podcasts that say this exact thing. I just heard Sirius Satellite Radio touting the return of the Neil Young channel. Like, I wonder what occasioned that. Well, Sirius on their Patriot News channel plays Dan Bongino and Breitbart News and you get all the same vaccine misinformation on that channel and a few others. Neil Young can't really even play his music over the air if Neil Young wants to keep rocking in the free world on Cincinnati's 92.5 The Fox or GLO, Peoria's classic rock. Well, they are owned by Cumulus Media. Cumulus pays Dan Bongino millions of dollars a year to oppose vaccine mandates and also, by the way, spread a whole lot of Trump election nonsense, which Joe Rogan doesn't buy. There's no easy answer, except... Maybe for smart people to arm themselves with facts and recognize how the distortion of facts work. Of course, if we had a population adept at that, we wouldn't be so vulnerable to misinformation and wacky conspiracy talk about COVID would have no more an effect on the public health than loose lips concerning Bigfoot. Who I'm not saying exists. I'm just saying no baboon is making footprints that could drown a Pekingese. Reasonable. And that's it for today's show. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Corey Wara does jam out to Peoria's classic rock, especially on this, a two for Tuesday. Michelle Pesk is the chief risk officer for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Advertise Cast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Peru, deparu duperu, de and thanks for listening.